0: Welcome to the World War II radio podcast. Today, we have NBC's War Telescope, as it aired on May 15th, 1943. This weekly series was broadcast from London and offered updates on the war, as well as looking at the past and what could be coming in the weeks and months ahead. Less of a news program and more of a weekly feature program, it was hosted by war correspondent Morgan Beatty. The World War II Radio Podcast is a BrickPickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Be sure to visit our website at brickpicklemedia.com slash podcast, where you can find links to past episodes and other information. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash WW2 Radio. Thanks for listening, and enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast.
4: Each Saturday at this time, the National Broadcasting Company presents Morgan Beatty's War Telescope, a review of the War Week and a forecast of possible developments to come. Morgan Beatty is NBC's veteran war reporter in the British capital. And so, for his regular Saturday report, we take you now to London. This is Morgan Beatty in London, looking at the 194th week of war through the War Telescope. For the first time since hostilities began, the United Nations have carried war across the ocean to a major continental victory. In short, we've made war on a large scale at the end of a supply line. By now we know that Eisenhower's genius welded the troops of three nations into a powerful offensive force in North Africa. We know that Alexander's military strategy stripped the enemy of his weapons. We know how Patton's tank made the magic moves outlined by Alexander and how Montgomery held the enemy in a dead-end street in front of Antietamville. But what we haven't been told is how war traveled to North Africa, how the guns and the uniforms and the bandages and jeeps dropped into place at the appointed hour. Today we're going to tell you a part of that story, the part played by the United States Army's Services of Supply in England. The Services of Supply with our British allies literally put war into self-opening passages. From the American point of view, General Brayon Somerville is the man behind the packages in Washington. Here in Britain, he has a repackaging unit, or at least a resorting engine, in full operation. Last July, President Roosevelt and Prime Minister Churchill gave the orders to take war to Africa. In London, a small group of United States Army officers set to work immediately. They were men like Major General John C.H. Lee, commanding general of the services of supply in the European theater, and his supply lieutenant, such as Brigadier General Henry P. Saylor, Chief of Ordnance, Robert M. Littlejohn, Chief Quartermaster, Cecil R. Denty Moore, Tooth Engineer, Paul R. Hawley, Chief Surgeon, and William S. Rumble, Chief Signal Officer. These men shipped everything from watch springs to 155-millimeter guns. They added cement and gasoline and collapsible houses made in England and shot it all down to North Africa on a split-second schedule. Now, these supply men are getting the battle tools ready for action wherever the high command decides to wage war next. They've taken time out of their busy day to tell us something about what it means to provide gunpowder or hospitals at the drop of a hat. Let's start with General Saylor, Chief
2: of Ordnance. General, can't you give us a simple explanation of ordnance? Ordnance is firepower, and firepower will win the war. The more stuff you pour on the enemy, whether you pour it out of a gun or an airplane, the quicker it will be over. But unfortunately, you can't just dump guns and ammunition on the ground and leave it at that. On the North African operation, we had to waterproof vehicles so that they would run through beach water. We couldn't have an engine drowning out like an old Model T crossing a creek. We had to package individual repair kits and mark them. You can't tell a soldier you thought you put his machine gun down on the left side of a road somewhere. He'll be dead by the time he traces your thoughts. That must have meant keeping track of thousands of items, General. Yes, about hundred and eighty thousand, in fact. At one of our depots here, the transportation service has laid down facilities enough to handle the freight for a city the size of South Bend, Indiana.
4: Yes, and I've seen an American locomotive operating out there, General, and I've heard that sweet whistle. It's enough to make a man long for home. But thank you, and more firepower to you. Next, there's General Littlejohn, the heart-bitten Chief Quartermaster. General, what part does the Quartermaster in England play
1: in North Africa? We furnished all the food and a high percentage of clothing, gas, and oil for North Africa. The widely separated distances and rapidly moving warfare necessitated the extensive use of what we commonly call reserve rations. On their arrival in Africa, rations were handled by labor that spoke several foreign languages. These men did not know how to sort both shipments. The labor scrambled the rations and our soldiers found it difficult to unscramble it. At first, some soldiers in the front line found themselves eating single items like canned prunes when they should have had a balanced diet, but they bore it carefully. We've learned a lot about the feeding of troops in modern mobile warfare. At any rate, foreign languages will never scramble our food again. What about food here in the British Isles, General? It's ample fire, soldiers. Some people back home think we are not fed properly. The ration here is a little lower in weight, but there's plenty if none of it goes into the garbage can. And there's no need to send American soldiers over here in a food or clothing. I've had to write my wife a number of times about this. <laughs> that would be embarrassing to the Quartermaster,
4: wouldn't it, General? Thank you, sir. Now the Signal Corps. Communications hold the Army together. Therefore, much of the signal service must be veiled in secrecy.
2: But General Rumbo has consented to go as far as he can. One of our most difficult problems in preparing for North Africa was batteries. When all units go into operations, they use their radio sets continuously, which means a heavy drain on dry cell batteries. Doorbell batteries, as we civilians would say? Yes. When orders for North Africa came to us in England, receipts of dry batteries were not at hand from the United States. We knew, we knew we would need many more than we had, or could get from home. The British promptly put several plants in 24-hour production. They made what we call Chinese copies. That is, near copies of American batteries. And
4: did every unit get away completely equipped?
2: Yes. The last shipment made the boats under officer convoy on the last day delivery was possible. And we were operating vast telephone and teleprinative networks, and they did fine service. But probably our most essential message agency was a GHQ messenger service. They operated in daylight and darkness. and They got their messages through. We were handling 100,000 messages a week in the emergency period before the convoys left. And that,
4: I suspect, is communication. Thank you, General Rumbo. Now the engineers. General Moore, this engineering end of fighting is a mystery to most of us.
2: Can you explain, especially in relation to North Africa? Here's the problem before North Africa, Mr. Beatty. We had to superimpose a large American force larger than our entire pre-war army on the British military plant. That meant adding new camps, new depots, shops, hospitals, complete airfields, and special air depots. We had to transform farmers' fields into military cities, including the public utilities. In addition, we took on the North African operation. There was no dodging it. If the engineers don't go, the army won't go. We assembled portable power plants and pipelines for oil and gas. We hurried the construction of airports and the complete concrete runways we're building on the aerial highway to Berlin. We poured enough concrete in one airport to build a trunk line highway from Washington to Baltimore. One of our delicate jobs is maps. If our soldiers had not had complete detailed maps of North Africa, they wouldn't have known where they were going. We reproduced and issued millions of secret maps. They were handled and sealed by officers only. One map in the enemy's hands might have given the entire operation away.
4: And now we know, General, why if you engineers don't go, the army won't go. Thank you. Next, the war machinery that interests mothers, wives, and sweethearts probably more than any other. The hospitals, the doctors, and all that goes with them. General Hawley, chief surgeon, is our man. General, I understand the North
2: African campaign planning,
4: last July,
2: gave your corps much work. Yes, Mr. Beatty. Unfortunately, no entire complete hospital equipment had reached us here in Britain by last July. Several had arrived in pieces, and the parts were scattered all the way from base depots in the United States to ships at sea and to various arrival ports here. From the pieces of hospitals we had, and with the magnificent help of the British, we filled the hospital order for North Africa. All the equipment arrived there, 99 and 5 tenths percent complete. That's a remarkable performance for our supply personnel. Many of these men had come out of filling stations and hamburger stands back home only a few months before and therefore knew nothing at all about identifying the strange hospital items. Here in Britain, we've also taken some of the casualties from the North African theater. They've been comfortable all the way and cheerful, almost without exception. And here we've got fine American equipment, recognized everywhere as the best in the world, and medical teams from great American institutions like Columbia, University of Michigan, Harvard, University of California,
4: Syracuse, and Maine. Thank you, General Hawley. I know that American mothers appreciate the job you're doing. And now the general commanding the services of supply in the European theater, a man already famous for helping to tame the Mississippi River in peacetime. He has now created the greatest arsenal of supply ever built by one nation upon the soil of another. Major General John C.H. Lee.
3: Thank you, Mr. Beatty. My supply chiefs have given you people back home an informal, and I hope interesting picture, of some of the planning that preceded the Allied victory in North Africa. I would like to state quite clearly, however, the central planning that made it all possible was done in Washington and in London by our leaders the combined chiefs of staff. Also, the brilliant execution of the overall plan was General Eisenhower's, and the forces gathered around him in North Africa. In our own service sphere, General Somerville in Washington took the helm magnificently and provided the necessary services of supply to our armies destined for victory. I know that he is grateful, as we are, for the support all you Americans are getting us from home. The equipment and supplies you send us are superb. General Montgomery of the British 8th Army has wisely said that it is vital for a commanding officer to realize that his administration in rear must be commensurate with what he wants to achieve in front. He must also realize, and very clearly, that if such is not the case, he will very probably fail. We here in Britain are an administration in rear. We are operating the supply lines, which are the lifeblood of the forces receiving the sinews of war. The most brilliant soldier cannot carry out his design of battle unless we provide a smoothly working arsenal of battle machinery. Battle machinery in modern war is the most technical that man has ever known. Therefore, in my service command, there is no such thing as an unimportant assignment. The officers and men you folks back home have sent to the British Isles. They know that they're doing important work. Whether they're laying concrete for that aerial highway to Berlin, or whether they're cooking solid food for healthy soldiers. And we will deliver the goods. And I should pay tribute to these men, down to the privates in the field. It is literally true, in the North African operations, that the secret of great events was shared by thousands of officers and enlisted men in the United Kingdom. They did not know the details, or when or where we would strike, but they knew enough, so that the enemy might have pieced together our plan of battle if a single cold word had been slipped. For three months, we maintained rigid silence. Hundreds of us, just thousands of us, toiled night and day. Some of the men who were working on secret maps, at times went 76 hours without sleep but they maintained silence. And that act alone contributed to victory. It helped keep war away from America's shores. At this moment, those same thousands of men and many more in these islands are engaged on even greater tasks. They're keeping greater secrets. They are preparing for the next blow against the enemy. They are preparing to help the high command block the path of victory. They are getting ready to take some of the roads that President Roosevelt and Prime Minister Churchill, there with him, have so aptly said leave to Berlin, Rome, and Tokyo.
4: Thank you, General Lee. Ladies and gentlemen, we've just had the rare opportunity of hearing the military wing of democracy explain how it functions a long way from home. We've had another opportunity to compare our own people, our own leaders, with the leadership of the Axis state. There, especially in Germany, Hitler covers up all his general's hard work. He hides it from the eyes of the people then suddenly presented to the Axis citizen is a piece of black magic. The successes of the Germans in Europe at the start of this war were marked by the same kind of staff work, the same kind of work by privates and generals as we have described to us today. But instead of explaining as far as possible how it was done, the Germans chose to make it look like a superhuman accomplishment and attribute it all to the some rare element of Nazism. As these American generals have explained to us, war is hard work, brains, and organization and machines. Making these into teams produces efficient fighting forces, and we have them. And now this is Morgan Beatty saying, so long until next Saturday. You have been listening to War Telescope, a weekly report on the war, as seen from London by Morgan Beatty, NBC's veteran war observer in the British capital. This program has come to you from London
2: and New York. This is the National Broadcasting Company.